You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 12th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. They may be wrong. I mean, I may stand before you in six months and say, hey, I was wrong. I don't know that I'll ever admit that, but I'll find, a, <laughs> I'll find some kind of an excuse. He may not have meant to say that out loud. My guests Kathleen Burke and Brian Klaas will be discussing the Singapore summit and the day's other top stories, including Spain's decision to take the migrants Italy wouldn't, Barack Obama's informal workshops for his as-yet unnamed successor as Democratic nominee for the presidency, and is everybody younger than you an idiot? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Kathleen Burke, Professor of Modern and Contemporary History at University College London, and Brian Class, Fellow in Comparative Politics at the Department of Government, London School of Economics. Welcome both. And we start inevitably with this morning's encounter between US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Singapore. President Trump has described the meeting as tremendous, but then he would. While handshakes and a weird bonhomie between the pair are doubtless preferable to mutual threats of atomic annihilation, it is very very far from clear so far what, if indeed anything, has been agreed. The statement signed by the two leaders bore a number of eerie similarities to previous such things signed by previous North Korean regimes, who then proved ungentlemanly enough to ignore the provisions therein. Uh, Brian, has anything actually been accomplished here, with all due acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, the two of the too soon to tell clause? Uh, something's been accomplished for Kim Jong-un. Um, he has been elevated to the status of a peer nation to the United States. And he achieved the one specific concession that existed in this agreement, which is that Trump pledged to end military exercises that are a show of strength between the United States and South Korea. And, and I think that's a very important achievement for Kim Jong-un. On the other side, uh, what Kim Jong-un actually gave up was effectively nothing. He made a vague pledge to complete denuclearization, which they've been pledging since 1992 repeatedly, um, in very similar language, by the way, to the 1992 agreement. And and there was no verification. There was nothing that they talked about uh, put into the agreement. I think the the sort of the irony of this all is that the G, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was lambasted by these same people for having no not enough verification. When in fact that agreement was built around the idea that Iran was going to cheat and they needed to cre- create a system that would stop that from happening with verification, compliance checks, etc. And the same people who tore that agreement up are now cheering an extremely vague agreement with no verification, no benchmark no compliance, uh, and just empty promises. And all this is happening while Trump is praising one of the world's worst dictators, not criticizing him on human rights, and and effectively, uh, you know, just embracing him on the world stage, which I think was a very depressing moment. Okay, we'll call that a a B minus there from Brian. Um, (laughs) uh, Kathleen, if if we're going to try and be at least vaguely optimistic, and just for fun, let's try that. Can you at least look at this as a good start uh, in attempting to turn North Korea into a a more, uh, let's say, normal member of the uh, community of nations? I think that's a long-term goal. Um, One thing, Kim, uh, uh, Chairman Kim, Uh, should keep in mind is that Trump does not have a good track record in keeping his own word. And I think it will only take one uh, 
inadvertent shot or or, on, or vertent shot for that matter uh, by North Korea for Trump to rise up and say, well, you did this and therefore we're going to have military military uh, uh, exercises after all. So considering, I, I think I think uh, the North Koreans would be mad to put too much uh, too much faith in Trumpian promises. Um, you know, one thing that strikes me, I was trying to think today, um, as one does about Trump, of course, over breakfast, and that is who wins and who loses. And who loses, of course, is Japan and South Korea. Who wins is North Korea and China. And I, I do feel, well, Japan has an interesting relationship with uh, um, corruption. Uh, but I do feel rather sorry for them because they have eschewed all sorts of weapons because the United States made them do so in the post-war constitution. And how are they going to defend themselves if the U.S. decides to take out its weapons, decides they're not going to wander around the South China Sea anymore, and so forth? So I think it is good for China, obviously, and and North Korea, it is going to have a what the U.S. used to be called the era of good feelings for a while. But I think there is so much unthought about, so much promise that can't be carried out that I think there's going to be a scope for these sorts of discussions for a long time. I mean, Brian, is there any argument that it would be better in general if this hadn't happened? So I think the the one thing that we should be unequivocal on is that there is a lower risk of a nuclear weapon going off today than there was six months ago. That's no and, small change. And that's change. good, right? I mean, that's 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 a really well, although good it, thing. It could be argued, indeed, has yeah. been that it falls into that pattern of Trump creating a crisis yes. and creating a drama and then walking back from it and taking the credit. That's right. And the real the real risk, where if you were going to say that this is worse than no summit at all, I think you'd point to two arguments. One is that there's no walking back the legitimacy that Trump just gave Kim Jong-un. I mean, the American flag next to the Korean flag, the, uh, the, the sort of praise that he gave him on the world stage, the photo opportunities, all this stuff. Um, you know, the Kim dynasty has wanted this for decades. They've wanted to be treated as equals on the global stage with an American president. Trump gave that to them. That is a concession in itself. The second thing is that there is a potentially higher long-term risk or even medium-term risk of nuclear uh, showdown simply because this is supposed to be the end point. It's not supposed to be the beginning. Usually you have a period of diplomacy in which the technocrats work out all the details, and they actually hammer through the hard work of negotiation, and then the leaders come together to sign something. And the problem is, now that they've had the leaders come together already, is the State Department, which basically doesn't speak for Trump, going to be more effective at hammering out details than Trump himself? I'm skeptical of that, and that means that if the diplomatic track gets exhausted, what do they do? Another summit? I mean, it's it, at some point you sort of say that this is what John Bolton has long wanted, the national security advisor for Trump, who has basically in the past said, let's have a meeting as soon as possible because it will mean the diplomatic track will be exhausted faster. And that means we can go towards military options, course, which is something that Bolton wants. Of course, Bolton messed himself up by saying, let's have the Libya example. And he has been certainly, from what one gathers, sidelined in all the negotiations over North Korea. Also remember that Chairman Kim is Trump's sort of man. He likes toughness. He thinks he thinks he can deal with authoritarian authoritarian strongmen, and therefore um, he forgets that North Korea 
is as bad as he's been at keeping to agreements. Just a final thought on this, Brian. What would actually be a constructive next step? If, If we can all agree that the world would be a happier place if North Korea was less terrible and didn't have nuclear weapons, or at least there was no threat from their nuclear weapons, uh, what would actually be the, the way forward from where we, wherever it is we've got to? So this is where I think they should do the hard work of diplomacy and where the summit could actually create uh, progress. And I, I don't think it's going to happen because Trump doesn't have the follow-through. He doesn't have the uh, admiration for the experts who actually should be doing the grunt work. But if they were to do an actual diplomatic process, there is clear scope for the situation to be de-escalated through basically concessions that are from the Kim dynasty or Kim regime that do not involve complete denuclearization, but do involve a full cessation of military tests, a full cessation of ICBM capacity that could strike the United States, things like that, that they might actually give up. In response, the U.S. would give some form of graduated sanctions relief. That is a possible path forward. It would make it less likely for there to be imminent attacks, um, both of the nuclear and, and conventional variety. Will that happen? None of us really know. But there is a way in which the summit could be positive. My only real concern is that they rushed into this so much that it suggests a reality show nature to Trump's diplomacy that doesn't actually have that as the end goal. In other words, in a way, this really felt like this was a statesmanlike effort to appear uh, with gravitas heading into the midterms and to be the foreign policy president who's tackling this problem that past presidents haven't. Okay, well, let's move along now uh, and look at the migrant rescue vessel Aquarius, which is, as we go to air, bound for Valencia. The ship currently carrying 629 people fished out of the Mediterranean near Libya at the weekend was refused permission to dock by the new government in Italy and has been offered a harbour by the new government in Spain. Italy has helped resupply the Aquarius and has dispatched two ships to escort it, but new Interior Minister Matteo Salvini has been adamant that Italy will no longer serve, as he sees it, as a way station on the migration route from Africa. Um, Kathleen, first of all, what would have happened here if Spain hadn't stepped in, though? Probably Aquarius would be wandering around uh, the Mediterranean, I suspect. Um, it's quite uh, quite striking, the difference, because what both countries want to do is influence Europe about migrants. Italy has tried, is trying um, coercion and defiance. Spain is trying shame. We'll do this and no one else is, and aren't we wonderful? And therefore, you should probably take account of this for all sorts of ways. Um, so in that sense, this is a, this is a problem that, that's almost impossible to solve. All you can really do is manage it. Well, Italy's new government, Brian, thinks they can solve it by just taking the hard line. And I I think inevitable comparisons will be floated with with the Australian approach. And there are obvious geographic differences where Australia is concerned. There are no land borders linking Australia with any potential migrant routes. And the tricky thing you always run up against with this one, and speaking as an Australian who's not sure what he thinks about it, that's where I am as well, is that though the Australian approach is hard-hearted and in many respects has not made us look terrifically good. It has kind of worked. The boats did stop coming. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is going to be a real reckoning between Italy's new government and Europe, and this is forcing the question much sooner. I mean, I think that the the boats stopping coming seems unlikely just because of how large of a coastline Europe has, about how easy it is to transport across borders once you get to Europe, and of how close the places they're coming from actually are. So, this is this is the difference between Europe and Australia. And and this is this is a big. I mean, one of the countries that I study is Tunisia, and it's becoming a, a new 
pathway from North Africa into Europe. Um, precisely because there's a sort of whack-a-mole quality to migration into Europe, where if you start to patrol the Libyan waters, then they start to leave from Tunisia. And that's what, that's really what's happening. It's the low-hanging fruit uh, approach. So my, my worry also is that there is, you know, if Italy takes this sort of unilateral approach, other countries will not. It'll just disperse the migration. And it's why this sort of patchwork nature of uh, the regulatory framework around migration in the EU that wasn't really solved when this crisis started in earnest in, say, 2014, uh, is really what's all to blame for this. Because even with things like money that is given to migrant families to go back home if they arrive in Europe, there, there, the range of amounts of money that different countries have decided to give ranges from 50, 50 euros in places like Portugal up to thousands. And so it's creating these different incentive structures within the European Union, and there needs to be one approach so that one country can't be the bad guy, one country can't be the good guy. They share the burdens the same way that they're supposed to share the benefits of European governance. Well, that, of course, is what they all hope will happen, but that's what's not happening. So that that is a that is a gold star possibility, but there's no real point in discussing it because it's not going to happen, unfortunately. And I, I do wonder what you mean by dispersing the migrants around. You mean going around and landing on France or across the Channel and landing in Britain or up through uh, and landing in... in, in uh, uh, no, Gosh, I mean, I, I mean, know, I, mean having, I mean, having either a comprehensive uh, compensation plan that they agree with the new government in Italy or actually having punitive measures if European countries don't uphold their international agreements. I mean, I think there is at some point the EU will have to decide whether it just allows countries to renege on their pledges. And, you know, for Hungary, for example, is in this battle over migration with the EU as well. And, you know, the EU has basically been rolled by them. And they haven't stood up on anything about Hungary's governance crackdown using authoritarian tactics or its migration policy. So at some point, if, if Europe decides that it's just going to let countries make their own policy, then the, the European Union's own regulations become a farce. And then it creates incentives for all sorts of other countries to just follow the Italian example, which obviously is an untenable solution. I mean, Kathleen, is, is the political reality, though, not that the EU is going to have to adjust to the fact that uh, it, it has become a huge uh, domestic issue, especially in those countries with Mediterranean coastlines. It, it was the thing on which the Lager constituent of the Italian coalition campaigned. It is far from clear whether this move is going to be popular in Spain. Does the EU at some point, whether you agree with the, the sentiment or not, have to get its head around the fact that actually quite a lot of people in Europe don't like immigration very much? Well, that, that, of course, presupposes all sorts of layers of things. First of all, how are they going to stop it? Are they going to machine gun them on the beaches? Um, where is the money coming from now that Britain is leaving and there goes $50 billion a year or whatever? Um, who decides what? How are you going to go out? I mean, they, what are they going to do to Poland and Hungary Well, there's or Austria? There's the threat that they're going to do appalling stuff with, with money and, and so forth, and they don't care. Um, the, the thing is, Europe is a much weaker institution, I think, than people assume. It's fundamentally run by the various countries, which is probably, I suppose, um, how it ought to be, or at least in, in uh, how it is at this point. So the question is, they, there are desires, but to what extent does Europe have the force protection, or to what extent um, will it use it? What are they going to do to these countries? But I think also, I mean, one one final point here, too, is that there's a shift in the demographic groups of the migrants that can allow Europe to take a harder line in a legitimate way, I think. Because when we're talking about the 2013, 2014, 2015 migration, 
the overwhelming bulk of that was Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan. Now, the, I believe the third largest country for entrance is Nigeria, which is a totally different type of migrant. And I think that international asylum law among refugee status and things like that obviously ties the hands of European countries much more if it's economic migrants from countries that just happen to be poor, which doesn't I mean you don't want to be heartless. But at the same time, uh, I, I think there is a, a important distinction there that could allow Europe to have a more nuanced policy in dealing with countries from different from different countries of origin, effectively. But the question is, how are you going to stop them? Are you going to machine gun the, the boats? That's the problem. What you do when they get here is an entirely different, different problem. Uh, entirely different problem. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Kathleen Burke and Brian Class. Coming up next, who is Donald Trump's 2020 opponent? Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Kathleen Burke and Brian Klaas. Now, the American political cycle being what it is, it's not really all that long before those who fancy themselves contenders in the 2020 presidential election begin making themselves known. For obvious reasons, the pressure on the Democrats to put up a plausible candidate is historically great. To that end, it has emerged that former President Barack Obama has been meeting with several Democrats who are poised on the edge of the proverbial ring, readying themselves to fling their hats. Some are pretty much who you might expect, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Others are intriguing relative newcomers, among them Cory Booker, Eric Garcetti and Mitch Landrio. Um, Brian, do you see a president in that lot anywhere? It is so hard to say. I mean, I think that there's, uh, you know, if you look back at the pre-Obama years, this time before Obama uh, became president, he was a relative unknown with the, with the exception of some people in Democratic circles after he gave a keynote address at the 2004 convention. So before the 2006 midterms, not a lot of people knew who he was. And then he sort of emerged and, and defeated the Clinton machine in, in 2008. So I think all bets are off at this point. It's a very wide open field. I would expect we're going to have 20 plus candidates probably. There's outsider candidates who might throw their hat in the ring. So people like Howard Schultz, the, the CEO of uh, Starbucks, uh, who's stepping away and there's speculation about him running. Obviously, there's the Oprah question, which would be a disaster in my opinion. Um, but I think there's also other people readying, people like Adam Schiff, who's the chairman of the, or sorry, the, the ranking member in the House Intelligence Committee. Um, Jason Kander, who failed, had, had a failed uh, Senate candidacy in Missouri. So, you know, there's all these people who sort of you don't think about, but they're actually reasonably popular within the Democratic base, and they could end up emerging from a splintered field. The thing that's a bit sad about American politics is that the starting gun will really be fired as soon as the midterms end. Uh, November 6, 2018 is when the midterms happen. November 7th is when the presidential election begins. And uh, the campaigns will literally start hiring people at that point. I was gainfully employed uh, on a salary for a gubernatorial campaign for 22 months. Um, so, you know, and that was for, for governor. This For president, the machine is already in motion for some of these people. Uh, Kathleen, is there a, if, if, if there's not necessarily a, a contender among these names, is there a, a hypothetical idea for the Democrats of what their president or candidate in 2020 should look like, what qualities they should possess, what kind of background they should have? If you, if you were trying to build the ultimate Trump destroyer, what does he or she look like? Oh, dear. Um... 
someone who isn't embarrassing, uh, whose who's, uh, public persona uh, doesn't make you cringe. Now, that, of course, your immediate response can be that his public persona is supported by an awful lot of people. Okay, but he's not a Democrat. Um, Democrats like to be caring, sharing personae. Um, I think that a lot of them think they should. It, it really is time to have a woman. Uh, if they want someone, uh, they don't. I, I think Kamala Harris's chances uh, at this point aren't very high. She's a Californian senator. She's a highly intelligent black woman. Now, I think after Obama, that's going to people are going to back off a bit of that because uh, uh, for all sorts of um, unfortunate reasons. But I suppose the ideal candidate would be. One male and one female, that is to say, president and vice presidential. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have um, uh, Mitch Landier, the, ex, ex, you know, the mayor of New Orleans, uh, you need uh, a woman from, say, Montana um, or even or Ohio. Uh, they have to be educated, but they can't make a big deal of it. They have to be um, personable. They have to look good, but they can't be arrogant. They have to like, be able to drink beer as well as also <laughs> wine with fundraisers. So, uh, and ideally, you'll have them one way or the other. One goes for the beer, the other goes for the wine. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what, what should, what advice do you think Barack Obama would be passing along? I mean, he has obviously won two presidential elections. He, he got nominated in the first place when people didn't expect him to. Yeah. But what he didn't do, because he didn't have to do, although I suspect he would have done, was beat Trump. Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's... Obama has obviously some very good experience and very good advice to give about the presidential election. But we also have to keep in mind that the Democratic Party did get decimated at the state level under his presidency. Um, the amount of governorships, state houses, state senates that were lost um, it was, I mean, it was, it was a lot. And so the real question that the Democratic Party is facing is whether it tries to double down on its core base, which right now is coastal, is urban, uh, is a coalition that involves a lot of minority voters, or whether it tries to win back the people that Trump peeled off from the heartland of America, right? The the sort of Ohio voters, uh, where I'm from in Minnesota, et cetera. And it's a big question. I think for the National Party, they, they don't have a clear answer to this. And there's some elasticity in how they can sort of set up their platform where you can have people in Minnesota run a very different campaign from people in California. That's not a luxury that the presidential candidate has because they have to appeal to everyone. And the question really is, can you try to win back those Trump voters without depressing turnout in places like Milwaukee, which is a overwhelmingly black city in, in Wisconsin, for example, right? Or in New York and in, in, in places where somebody who's too centrist might turn off some of the people who liked Bernie Sanders on the left wing of the camp. So uh, this is a really tricky issue. I think the one thing that is unifying all these people is they hate Trump. And I think that, you know, in some ways, the Obama years did show, unfortunately, that in a hyper-polarized society like the United States, opposing someone works. And I think that's to an extent what happened. And, and so unfortunately, we may end up in a political uh, system in which that is basically the ebb and flow of politics. It's just 100% you oppose whoever's in office. Uh, Kathleen, is there an argument, and this is a leading question, that if, if Barack Obama did give advice to Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders in particular, the best advice he could have given them was just sit down, keep quiet, your time is up? Uh, yes, because uh, Sanders is 76. Uh, Biden can't be far off that. Um, 
running a campaign, let alone running a White House, is an energetic uh, requirement. Energy is required. Uh, the difficulty is they are now senior statesmen. They're, they should be consulted by the by any candidate once they're once the candidate, if it's Democrat in office, uh, should have an open line if necessary because they both have a lot to contribute. Uh, experience, ideas, personality. But I think, yes, I, th- I would be very surprised if either one of them ran again. I'd be kind of surprised if at least one of them doesn't. But finally tonight, possible, well, highly dubious, but let's call it possible, scientific confirmation of the defining realisation of middle age, i.e. that young people are morons. A Norwegian study claims to have calculated that IQ scores, though themselves a debatably reliable indice of actual intelligence, are declining among the young. The fall appears to begin with people born in 1975 and suggests a reversal of the Flynn effect, whereby IQ scores rose with every generation. Part of the blame, it says here, may be attributed to the distraction caused by electronic devices. Um, People born since 1975 are noticeably stupider. It's scientific fact than their older peers. I'm looking at you, Brian. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in that camp. Uh, So uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, clearly you don't know what to say. (laughs) I think I think there are I think there are I think there is some merit to this idea that electronic obsession can uh, make us dumber. But I also think that, par- that there's probably going to be an inequality effect of this. In other words, there will be people who harness technology for their children in ways that actually make them cleverer because they have uh, incredible applications for learning using technology. This is there, true. There are also people who will not do anything with their children and, and use basically television and smartphones as daycare. And effectively, uh, you know, that can compound the problem. So I, I can see the merit in this, in, in the sort of logic of the study. But I think that it's a question of, of you know, harnessing technology for, for learning and education. That being said, I mean, I'm a bit dubious of the seven points down in the IQ that the study suggests. That's quite a large effect for one generation. Uh, maybe it's true, but IQ tests are notoriously uh, unreliable. So. It, didn't, it didn't say seven for one generation. It said three for each generation. So that's, that's yeah, two but, and a half. Yeah, but, but Brian was born since 1975. You can't expect him to get numbers. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one, well I, that's, that's one thing that makes me happy I'm older then, obviously, because I'm, I'm self, it's, it's self-evident that I'm um, in the clever well, side. Well, well, obviously, as, as obviously am I. But on, on the subject of electronic devices, Kathleen, it, what strikes me is maybe maybe the electronic devices are not in themselves making people stupider. It's just it's it's making their stupidity more accessible to everybody else. I mean, I, I cannot overstate my utter relief that social media was not a thing until I was well into my 30s, because it occasionally strikes me that the defining question of our age was the one first asked by uh, Diamond Joe Quimby, the mayor of Springfield. And this was some years before social media was a thing when he said, are these morons getting dumber or just louder? <laughs> oh boy. Um, who do we ask? Do we ask uh, Brian on that one? Um, I, I, the problems with well, there are very many problems with social media. Partly is that if you've only got if you're keen on talking and you've only got 140 characters, that means you're down to sound bites. Um, it means that reading things on the net has has been 
demonstrated, and no, I'm not going to give you references to it because I can't think of them, that means people find it difficult to read longer pieces of writing. And so, therefore, it's really hard to read a book if you're used to reading 340-character pieces of information. So I do think social media—I do think uh, um, the devices do contribute. It certainly contributes, as as those who teach know, to a less— children's less ability to pay attention for a long period of time, less ability to read continuously for a long period of time. Can that? Your brain is a muscle. It has to be exercised. And if you're not exercising it, uh, you don't use it to the, to the best of your ability. I mean, Brian, isn't what we're looking at here, though, with this study just funny? It's the human condition, basically, doesn't every generation believes that everything after them represents a decline? I mean, do you look at people even younger than yourself and just think humanity is doomed? Well, I, th- I think there are some worrying trends. I think there's this atomization of society in a way where we obsess about everything happening much faster and without sort of contemplation. I, I, I did have a student. I mean, I, he will remain nameless, but he came into my office hours and said, I don't do the reading. I'm not going to do the reading. How can I get a good grade so I can get my degree as soon as possible? And that's what just, did you say? Is, is he now the president of the United <laughs> States? <laughs> So, you know, I said you have to do the reading. I mean, there's no other answer, right? I mean, the, the, the answer is the entire existence of education is not about degree mills. And yet there is, I think, in some people who have this sort of instant gratification obsession, the idea that that's what it's all about. Well, on that happy note, that brings us to the end of today's show. And congratulations to sticking it with it through half a solid hour. Uh, Kathleen Burke and Brian Class, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Research by Lamichi Okamoto. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design with Josh Fennett. And there's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm your host for that as well. For now, I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.